0: Well, how about let's take a Bible this morning and let's open it together to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be returning to our study. In the life of the great man of God, David. And uh, so we're going to be turning 1 Samuel 22. If you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing our copy of the Bible? We're on page 207 of our copy of the Bible or 1 Samuel chapter 22 in your copy of the Bible. Now here's an interesting stat for you. In 1912, it cost to build the Titanic 7.5 million dollars. In 1997, to make the movie Titanic, it cost $200 million. And, and you know, no matter how much money they spend telling the story, the score never changes. Have you noticed that? It's always iceberg, one, Titanic, zero. Never changes. But can you imagine... The desperation uh, of those people who were on deck as those lifeboats rowed awake. Can you even begin to think what they must have been feeling, how desperate it must have been on that ship? You know, uh, uh, legend records that the Titanic's musicians gathered on the deck and that as the ship was going down, their final song was the great hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. It's interesting, that's a song they never played on the four days on the journey out and probably never would have played, you know, all the way if they'd have gotten to New York, but they played it with that ship sinking. And Eva Hart, a little seven-year-old girl that survived the Titanic, records that from her seat in one of the lifeboats, she could hear the people on deck singing hymns together as the ship went down. Now, what this tells us is that desperation many times is a force that drives people Godward. And you know, in 18 years of being a pastor and 28 years of being a Christian, I have come up with a little statement about desperation that I really believe is true. Here's what it says. It says, God deals with the desperate. Now, I've learned that from working with people over those 18 years and observing my own life over 28 years of being a Christian, God deals with the desperate. It's not that God won't deal with non-desperate people. He will. It's just that non-desperate people very often are not willing to deal with God, at least not on God's terms. And many times, it's when we are put in situations where we are out of resources and completely desperate, it's then and only then that people will turn Godward, such as happened on the deck of the Titanic. Now, if we believe this, and if this is true, then friends, what that means is that desperation is not necessarily a bad thing in our life. It means that desperation and getting to a point where we feel that way is not necessarily a a disaster in our life, but that God can use times of desperation to accomplish some very positive things in our walk with God. And this is what we want to talk about today, because we're going to look at a time in David's life where he was absolutely desperate. And we want to reflect upon the fact that God used this time to teach him some lessons that he could not learn anywhere else. Lessons he had to know in order to become the man of God that God wanted him to be. And that this is the same reason why God puts you and me as Christians into these situations. So come along, let's talk about it. First Samuel chapter 22. Remember the background here. David is running for his life. He's been through the little town of Nob where he lied to the high priest and got the high priest, all the other priests, and all their families killed because of it. Now he's gone down to Gath in Philistine country, the city of Gath, but he was recognized down there as being the one who killed Goliath, and the only way he could get out and not lose his life was he had to slobber all over his beard and pretend to be an idiot, and a madman was the only way he got out with his life. And that's where we pick up now with him leaving Gath, here in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, and David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam, which is right near Bethlehem. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress and all those who were in debt and all those who were discontented gathered around him. What a wonderful group of people. And he became their leader. About 400 of these malcontents. And David was like Robin Hood to these people. You know, folks, here in the cave, David hits bottom. I mean, think about it for a moment. He's lost his position as a general in Saul's army. He's lost his wife. He's lost his home. He's lost his best friend, Jonathan. He can't have any contact with him. He's lost his spiritual mentor and advisor, Samuel, who has died. He's lost his integrity, lying to the high priest, getting them all killed. He's lost his self-respect. I mean, he goes and dribbles all over himself and acts like a fool just to save his own life. And he's gone from leading the most elite bunch of troops in Israel to leading this bunch of ragtag malcontents. I mean, in David's life, he's never been this. We say, well, how was David feeling right at this moment? I mean, that's a question my wife would ask me. She'd say, well, how, how are you feeling about this? Well, isn't it wonderful that David just wasn't like most of us men who went, fine, because then you'd have 150 psalms with just one word, fine. No, David was able to express how he felt. And in Psalm 142, he does that very thing. Now, turn over with me, if you would, to Psalm 142. It's page 446, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 446, Psalm 142. And if you look at the heading of this psalm, the heading is found between the psalm number and the the first verse. It often tells you the circumstances surrounding the psalm. And here it says, Psalm 142, a masculine or a song of David when he was in the cave. You see, you mean the cave of Abdullam? Listen, for David, folks, there was only one cave. This was it. And he wrote this in the cave. And if you want to know how he was feeling, this psalm's going to tell you. Verse 7 says, set me free from my prison, God. I feel like I'm in prison. I don't know how many of you ever go into caves, whether you go splunking or whether you just go visiting. But you know, the best part about a cave is coming out. Back into the sunlight, back into the warmth, back into the fresh air. Well, David couldn't come out. To God, this was his home. If he comes out, Saul finds him and he loses his life. This is where he was stuck in this cave. There was no coming out for him. How was he feeling? Verse 2, David said, I pour out my complaint before you, God. I want you to know, God, I'm pretty unhappy and I'm complaining here. Verse 3, My spirit grows faint, he says. I'm exhausted, God. I'm frazzled. I'm drained dry. Verse 3 also, They've hidden a snare for me, David says. People are out to get me everywhere I go. I'm feeling pretty paranoid, to be honest with you. Verse 4, No one is concerned for me. Nobody cares uh, for my life. I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling abandoned. Verse 6, I am in desperate need, David says. My enemies are too strong for me. I'm in a situation, David says, where I know, frankly, I'm over my head. Way over my head. So let's sum uh, sum up, rather, how David was feeling. David was feeling angry. He was exhausted. He was emotionally drained. He was paranoid. He was feeling abandoned. He was feeling intimidated. He was scared. And he was desperate. And there was one more thing that David was feeling, and that is David was feeling confused. If you go to Psalm 57, which we won't do this morning, Psalm 57, the heading tells us, was also written when David was in the cave. And David says in Psalm 57, he says, I cry out to you, God, wondering how all of this fulfills your purpose for me. David says, I'm confused. I mean, God, look. First, you anoint me king over Israel. Then you grant me this huge victory over Goliath. Then you make me the son-in-law to the king. Then you make me a general in the army, and then everything's coming up roses. And then swiftly, the next thing I know, I find myself running like an outlaw, running for my life, and hiding out in this stupid cave. And God, I don't understand. I mean, why would you do this to me? What, what, what possible place could this cave have in fulfilling the plan that you have for me to become the king of Israel? I'm confused. I don't understand it. David was at the complete end of his rope, my friends. Out of ideas, out of schemes, out of his own resources, just plain out. Now, that, that brings us to the most important question we want to answer this morning. And I think you know what that question is. What is the most important question? Okay. Now, I've got to tell you, I watched the figure skating last night, and out of a 6, that was a 4.1. So we're going to try again. What's the most important question? Yeah, 5.9. Very good. Proud of you. Uh, you say, Lon, what difference does this make? I mean, I've never been in a cave. I don't like going in caves. I don't live in a cave. Uh, so what difference does this make to my life? It doesn't make one bit of difference to my everyday existence. So wait a minute, wait a minute. See, I, I think that many of us know how David was feeling because many of us have been in caves. Maybe not literally, but, but we have been in caves in our life. You know, I know a little bit about how David was feeling, I think. I think my wife Brenda, we know a little bit about how David was feeling. We've got a cave in a five-year-old little girl who's got a very bad seizure disorder. We've been to all kinds of doctors. We've been to research hospitals. We've been on every medicine known to man that could possibly help her, and it hasn't worked. We've been on this crazy diet that Johns Hopkins put us on for four and a half years where we have to weigh everything Jill eats to the gram for every meal. And uh, we're one of the longest-running people Jill is on this diet in history, and we're on it, and it hasn't worked completely. We've been to speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and Jill is still severely delayed. She's five years old, but she operates with the uh, development of about a nine-month-old. We've stood in the emergency room in the middle of the night wondering whether she was going to live. We've had the rescue squad at our house a lot. We've wondered what the future really holds for her and what it holds for us. Folks, we know what it's like to be up in the middle of the night walking around with her and be totally exhausted the next day. We know all of these emotions that David has had. We've been desperate, and at times we still are. And I can't help but believe that most of you here can appreciate a little bit how David must have been feeling, because there have been times in your life where you've been desperate. Maybe with your children. Something happens with your child. And, and, and there's nothing you can do to change it. And, and you know, and you're desperate. Or something happens in your business and there's nothing you can do. You're powerless and you're watching the whole thing crumble and you're powerless and you're desperate. Or, or maybe at school where you're trying to make a sports team or make the cheerleader squad or just trying to get good grades and no matter how hard you try, they're just not coming up A's and you're not making this team and you're desperate. Or, or maybe in your marriage. You're desperate. Or with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or maybe you're desperate to make ends meet you're trying to figure out how to bring in more money and just nothing's working right, or maybe you've got someone you love that's really sick and, and the prognosis is not good. Listen, many of us know what it's like to be in the cave and to really be out of resources and be desperate. And that leads us to the important question of why God does this to people. Why does God take David out of being a general and being all those good things we talked about and take him to this cave? And why does God do it to you and me? Well, listen to what Alan Redpath said in his commentary on the life of David. He said, it only takes a moment to make a convert, but it takes a lifetime to manufacture a man or a woman of God. He goes on to say, in the development of Christian character, there sometimes come moments when darkness seems to fall, when the sun seems to set, and when everything seems to be lost. It is when we have difficulties like this that we as Christians learn lessons that we could never otherwise learn, end of quote. And so the answer to that question, why did God bring David into that cave? The answer is very simple, because there are certain lessons that God needed to teach David that David couldn't learn anywhere else. God wanted to shape David's life. He wanted to mold David's life. He wanted to help David become the great man of God that David dreamed about being. But there was no way to do that without teaching him some lessons he could only learn in the school of desperation. And friends, you know what? Many of us aspire to be men and women of God the way David was. And that's good and that's wonderful. But you know what, folks? There are certain lessons you and I have to learn as Christians to become those men and women of God that you and I cannot learn either, except in the school of desperation. You say, okay, Lon, well, what are some of these big lessons you're talking about that we got to go do this desperation thing in order to be able to do? Well, I want to tell you about three of them. Three things that you and I can only learn in the cave. The three things we can only learn in the school of desperation. Number one, humility. Humility. My, my family and I were driving to Gatlinburg, Tennessee a few years ago, and we decided to do the all-night drive deal, you know, where you start out and you drive all night and you put the kids to bed and you let them sleep in the back so when you get there in the morning, you know, they, they, you know they're not exhausted. You are, but they're not. And so we drove and I, I got to Tennessee and I was looking at the map. It was the middle of the night. And I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I see this shortcut on the map. I figure it'll save us about an hour. So I popped off the interstate and got on this little shortcut. I had the map right there. Brenda woke up. She said to me, where are we? I said, well, we're in Tennessee. And uh, she said, how far away are we? I said, well, I'm taking a shortcut. She went, "Uh uh-oh. I said, no, 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 no. I got the map right here. I know exactly where I'm going. It's laid out. So we're driving along and the road's getting a little more remote and a little more remote. And Brenda said, I think you ought to stop and ask directions. And I said... Are you kidding? I mean, I got a map. I'm not an idiot. I can read a map. The map is plain. And if I stop, I'm going to wake the children up. And then we're going to have to deal with that. I'm not stopping. Everything is fine. Trust me. So we drive a little longer and things are getting a little more remote. And one of the things that worried us is the road turned to gravel. But, you know, no problem. The map's still the map. So we're driving along and Brenda's going, "I really think you ought to stop and get directions at the next place you find to stop cuz there's no place to even stop anymore. You passed all those places." And I'm like, "Brenda, I got it. I'm right on with the map." And way up ahead after a while, I finally I saw this big sign. It was lit, and I thought, "Hot dog, see there. I knew I could do this." And we drive up to where we could read the sign, and the sign says in big letters, "Welcome to North Carolina." So anyway, it um, <laughs> took us a little longer to get there than we originally planned. Now, why are men like that? And this is not just a man problem. This is a problem endemic to human nature. Why is it that we as people don't like to stop and ask directions or do anything like that? I'll tell you why. It's because none of us as human beings likes to admit that we need help. We want to admit that we got it, we got it under control, and we don't need anybody's help. That's part of being human. But folks, you know, the essence of humility is being willing to openly admit that we need help. That's what humility is all about. Being willing to admit that we can't make it on our own and that we're willing to accept outside assistance. This is something that you and I will never learn from success. Success will teach us the exact opposite, that we're fine and we can do it ourselves. The only place you and I will ever learn the humility to admit that we need outside assistance is from being pressed to the point where we run out of resources and we are desperate. You say, well, Lon, why is this so important? I mean, what difference does it make? Well, I'd like to show you. First Peter chapter 5, if you turn there with me. 1 Peter, chapter 5, it's page 859, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 859, the first letter that Peter wrote, chapter 5. And I want you to look at verse 5 when you get there. 1 Peter, chapter 5, and look at verse 5. Why is humility important? Well, God's about to tell us. Look what he says, uh, 1 Peter, chapter 5, the middle of verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? Why do I need this thing called humility? Because, look, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace. He gives help. He gives assistance to the humble. The reason humility is important, my friends, is because it is the key to unlocking The help and the grace and the assistance of God in our life. What this verse is telling us is that God grants His personal assistance to people in direct proportion to their humility. Or to put it in other words, the more you and I are willing to admit that we need God's help, the more God is willing to give it to us. And so if we want to unlock God's help in our life, the only way to do it is through humility, and the only way to learn to be humble is to get to the place where we get desperate enough to admit we can't do it ourselves. And may I take a moment and say if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that the whole foundation of coming to Christ and trusting Him as your Lord and Savior is humility. Because in order to come to Christ and accept Him as your Lord and Savior, you've got to be willing to come and admit that you can't do everything for yourself and you need help that you can't get eternal life yourself, that you can't forgive your sins yourself, that you can't transform your life from the inside out and make it something really worth living by yourself. And it's when you and I get to the place that we're willing to admit that, that suddenly we're ready to do business with God in terms of Him becoming our Savior. That's why many times, even before you're a Christian, God allows people to go into desperate times. He's trying to bring you to the point that you're willing to admit you need His help so He can help you. I met a guy the other day who told me, he said, you know, Christianity is just a crutch. He said, I'm not interested in a crutch. Jesus is just a crutch. What do you say about that? I said, you know what? Here's what I say. You are absolutely, totally, completely right. It is. But he said, you don't have a problem with that? I said, absolutely not. Because when I read the Bible, I find God saying that every human being is a cripple. So if every human being is a cripple, what's the problem with a crutch? I have no problem with that at all. See, the real issue is not whether I need a crutch. That's a given. The real issue is finding the crutch that works. Finding the one that works. Not just for this life, but for eternity. And I found the only one that works. See, and if you're here, friends, and you feel that in order to humble yourself and admit you need help, that you're accepting a crutch, I've got great news for you. You're right. But it's the crutch that'll work, and you need it, and I need it. Something to think about. Well, there's a second thing that we can only learn in the school of desperation, and that's not only humility, but second of all, absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. One of the important lessons that David needed to learn if he was going to become the great leader that God wanted him to be is the lesson of absolute surrender. And one of the great lessons that you and I as Christians need to learn if we're going to become the men and women of God that we dream about being is the same lesson. You say, Lon, absolute surrender to what? Absolute surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. Absolute surrender means we come to the place where we say, God, I acknowledge that you are the one who is in charge here and that it's your plan for my life that we need to see happen. My plan for my life doesn't make any difference. It's your plan that we need to worry about. And David needed to come to the place where he could acknowledge that and where he could say, Lord, if your plan means this dirty old dingy cave, then this dirty old dingy cave is fine. It's okay. And may I remind you that absolute surrender does not mean just getting to the place where you can tolerate God's plan for your life. It means getting to the place where you can embrace God's plan for your life. And where you can accept it with joy and say, just like Jesus did, not my will, but yours be done, God. And where that's a joy statement in your life. That's not a toleration statement, it's a joy statement. You know, in 1864, as the year began, the Civil War was going pretty poorly for the Union. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, in January of 1864, got up to give his second inaugural address. But it sounded very different than his first one had. In his first inaugural address and in the beginning of his presidency, he gave pep talks about keeping the Union together and how the North needed to deal with this and the North needed to do that and we needed to deal with slavery. But by the time the second one came around, after four years of struggle, four years of watching men maimed and killed on the battlefield, four years of watching every battlefield commander he sent out there get his butt kicked by Robert E. Lee, After four years of the stress and the strain of watching things go forward so poorly, when you hear Abraham Lincoln talk in 1864, he's not the same man talking as you heard in 1860. And in his second inaugural address, part of which, you know, you can go down and read on the wall of the Lincoln Memorial in town, this is one of the most distinctively Christian public statements ever made by a president of the United States. Listen to what he said. He said, fondly do we hope And fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, he says, if God wills that it should continue until all the wealth piled up by 250 years of toil shall sink. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it must still be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." End of quote. Do you understand what he was saying here? He was saying, I've come to the place as the President of the United States where I'm willing to absolutely surrender the United States to God. I'm willing to give this country to God, and if God wants to take this country and through the Civil War wants to take this country to absolute destruction, I've taken my hands off now. I can't do anymore. I'm done. I've done everything I know how. It's in the hands of God now. And whatever God wants, it's up to God. you understand what he's saying? How did God... Get Abraham Lincoln. To this point of absolute surrender, he got him there, friends, through four years of total desperation. How's God going to get you to the place where you can say when it comes to your life, God, whatever you want from my life is fine. You're in charge, not me. God will only get you there through putting you in times of desperation where you don't have anything else and you're willing to accept God's plan. There's a third and final thing that can only be learned in the cave, and that's not only humility and not only absolute surrender, but third and finally, total reliance on God instead of yourself. Total reliance on God instead of yourself. There's a wonderful phrase I use all the time, but it's so true. It says this, You never realize that Jesus is all you need till Jesus is all you got. And when Jesus is all you got, folks, you realize Jesus is all you ever need in any way. But you know what? To get us to that point, Jesus has got to take us to the place where He's all we got. Welcome to the cave. Welcome to desperation. That's what it's all about. But God takes us there to teach us that we don't need all this other stuff anyway. And that all of our human effort doesn't make a whole lot of difference anyway. That the Lord is all we really need. There's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament I'd like to share with you for our last verse of the morning. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 20, if you turn there, page 320, if you're using our copy of the Bible. Page 320, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This uh, verse that I'm going to share with you has kind of been a life verse for me. And in 28 years of being a Christian, it has never let me down. It's, it, it happens when King Jehoshaphat of Judah finds himself surrounded one day by enemy armies that are far superior to his army. And so he calls all the people of Israel together into the streets of Jerusalem and he prays to God. And here's how he ends his prayer. Listen, verse 12, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge this enemy of ours? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't even know what to do, God. But our eyes are upon you. Folks, this is the language of absolute reliance on God. Not- and notice how God got Jehoshaphat to this point. He got him to this point by putting him in a totally desperate situation where he said, God, we don't know what to do. And even what we knew, if we knew what to do, it wouldn't do any good anyway. God, our eyes are upon you. We don't, we don't know where to go from here. We're just relying on you, God. And if you don't come through for us, we don't have plan B, God. There is no plan B. Plan B is they're going to take this city and they're going to slaughter everybody and wipe the ground with our blood. That's plan B. You're our only plan, God. Folks, this is a wonderful place to be where God is your only plan. And if you want to really see the power of God unlocked in your life and in your family and in your career, let me tell you how to do it. Get to the place where God is plan A and you don't have plan B. And you will see God do unbelievable things in your life because God loves to move when He's the one that gets all the glory. And if you've placed Him in that role where He's your only plan and you're not depending on yourself but Him, God will move in ways that will shock you because God loves to get the glory. You say, well, Lon, what are you really saying here? We should just sit around and suck our thumbs and wait for God to do everything? Is that what you're saying? Don't do anything. Sit at home, eat chocolates, watch soap operas, and just wait for God to do everything? Is this what we do? No. No. I'm saying if you've got things to do, you should go out and, 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 and expend as much godly effort as you possibly could to resolve the situation. Listen, though, with a mindset that says, God, I may be out here doing all this effort, but you know what, God, my trust is not in my effort. My trust is in you. And if you want to use my effort in part, in whole, that's fine. To resolve the situation. And God, you know what? If you want to take all of my effort and discard it and not use one bit of it, that's fine too. But it makes me feel better to do something, so I'm doing something. But if you don't want to use it, that's fine. I'm not trusting what I'm doing, I'm trusting you. And then when we get to the places we often do, where our efforts run out and we don't even know what to do next, then to have learned the lesson of coming to God like Jehoshaphat and saying, Lord, we don't even know what to do next. But our eyes are on you. God, you got the ball now. You run it however you please. Friends, this is when God works. You say, Lon, come on. I mean, are you kidding us? I mean, you talk. I mean, God intervening. I mean, you you don't really believe God intervenes in the world like this, do you? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. How do you think we got the National Wildlife Federation property? Say, well, you went over there, they put the shingle out, you made them an offer, you bought it. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, folks, we started looking for property a couple years ago. We couldn't find any anywhere. We had a couple false starts It didn't work. People said we ought to move out to Loudoun County or whatever. Uh, you know, to get zoning approval, we probably need to move to Roanoke or something. But anyway... Um we said, no, we believe God called us to McLean area and that's where we're staying. Real estate agents came to us and said, you're crazy. We've done helicopter maps and surveys. There, are, there is no piece of property anywhere that will fit what you guys want to do. So they said, this is impossible. Lon. It's is not going to happen. I said, well, let me tell you my position on this. My position is, number one, I admit I need God's help and so I'm fine with that. Number two, I'm willing to absolutely surrender McLean Bible Church to God. And if God wants us to stay here and do seven services, eight services, nine services, we'll do them. It's okay. I'm okay with that if that's what God wants. But I'll tell you this, I'm relying on God and I know there is a piece of property somewhere God has for us. I know that. People said, Lon, not going to happen. I said, well, we'll wait and see. Let's wait and see. You know how we heard about the property? We had a fellow from our church that went to a party one night and a friend of his came over and started talking to him. This friend was on the board of a private school and the friend said to him, you know, our private school's thinking about moving. And, and my fr- the friend from our church said, really, where? And they said, well, right now we're looking to see if we can buy the National Wildlife Federation. The friend from the church that was there who was in real estate said, well, I didn't know the National Wildlife Federation had put their land up for sale. And the guy from the school said, well, they haven't. But we have a little inn where we heard they might be interested in selling, so we made an unsolicited offer, and we're trying to work that through. Our friend came back and called our real estate people and said, You need to call the National Wildlife Federation and see if this is true, if they're really interested in selling. We called for a month and couldn't get anybody to return our phone calls. And finally, after a month of calling, we got a phone call that went like this. Hey, if you're interested in finding out some information about the National Wildlife Federation selling their building, call this number. Click. Hung up. (laughs) True. We don't even know who called us. And we called the phone number and it was a real estate guy who was working with the National uh, Wildlife Federation. And sure enough, they were thinking about selling their property. The private school dropped out and we ended up being in the driver's seat and bought this piece of property. Don't tell me this doesn't work. Don't tell me God doesn't intervene in the affairs of life when you give him the chance. Of course he does. So may I say to you, if you're feeling desperate, and you're feeling like you're in the cave, and you're wondering why God would put your life in the cave, I'm here to tell you, my dear friend, that desperation, time in the cave, is not a bad thing. It is not an enemy. It is a friend to a Christian when God takes you there. It's not fun. It's not a pleasant experience, but it is our friend because it's the way God teaches us humility and it's the way God teaches us absolute surrender. And it is the way God teaches us what it really means to rely on him and not on ourselves. And these are lessons we've got to learn if we're going to become the men and women of God he wants us to be. But I got some good news for you. He said, "Well, Lion, We sure need it. We're glad somebody's got some good news. Now I got some good news for you. Here's the good news: God never leaves people in the cave forever. See, David came out of the cave, and if you feel like you're in the cave, God's going to bring you out of the cave." You say, Lon, yeah, yeah, that, I've seen that happen, but you know what my problem is? My life seems to be in the cave, out the cave, in the cave, out the cave, in the cave, out the cave. Well, mine does too. And you know, I talked to God about that a while back, me and God, and you know what God told me? He said, Lon, the reason you keep going in the cave, out the cave, son, is because you keep forgetting in the daylight what I taught you in the darkness. If you could remember when you come out in the daylight what I taught you in the darkness, you wouldn't have to go back for refresher courses, son. Maybe that's your problem, like me. I-, I need to do a better job when I come out or remembering the lessons God taught me when I was in there. And I'm asking God in my life to make me a better student, to make me a more cooperative student learning these lessons so I have to go back for fewer refresher courses. Maybe that is what you ought to be doing too. Friends, don't accept the prosperity gospel. The fact that you should always be healthy and wealthy and wise and successful and that if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith or that if you're not, it's because God's mad at you or you've done some awful thing that God's upset with you with. That's a lie. That is the biggest lie. That is not true at all. God took David into that cave. God orchestrated David going in that cave. God wanted David in that cave because there were lessons God needed to teach David in that cave. That David couldn't learn outside. And friends, when God takes you or me into desperate times, it's not because he's mad at us or he hates us or he doesn't love us or he's abandoned us. That's not true. It's because God wants to teach us those same lessons he wanted to teach David. Don't accept a cheap and superficial explanation for your troubles, friends. Expect a, 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 Rather, take a biblical explanation That God leads people into desperate times so He can shape and refine our lives so He can use us to a greater degree. And you know what? Knowing that brings me hope. It brings me hope that I'm not facing some kind of random suffering here. But that God's got a plan and if I'll stick with Him, I'll be glad for the days in the cave. You will too. May God change our lives, the way we live, the way we see our life, because of our contact with His Word this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for reminding us today that you don't waste experiences. And if you decide to take us into desperate times, it's not because these are wasted random acts, but because you have a plan. And for many of us here, myself included, who are dealing with desperate situations in our lives and who are struggling with some of the same emotions that David did in that cave, I want to pray, God, that you would use your word today to restore hope to our lives, to restore perspective to our lives, and to bring us to the place where we begin to understand why we are where we are, that there's a blessed purpose and that if we'll just trust you and if we'll just be good students that cooperate with you, you will use these tough times in ways that we will look back and thank you the rest of our lives for taking us to the cave. God, thank you that you love David enough that you weren't going to let him live his life on the surface like a baby. Thank you that you love us that same amount. So help us rejoice in the cave, even though it's no fun. Afflicted, I went astray. But now I've learned what it means to keep your way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.